0: This morning, I want to wish that especially to my mom and to my wife. And I would invite you, if you have your Bibles here at home, probably at home, to take them and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, where we'll read verses 9 to 21. 2 Timothy 4, 9 to 21. And Paul says, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for me, to me for service. But Ty- Tychicus I, left, I sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, and especially the parchments. Alexander the smith did much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed my teaching. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Oniferous. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick in Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, and Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren." In 1960, Ray Orbison sang a song that became his first hit song is called, Only the Lonely. Some of the lyrics read, Only the lonely know how I feel tonight. Only the lonely know that this feeling ain't right. And there goes my baby, there goes my heart. They're gone forever, so far apart. But only the lonely know why I cry. Only the lonely know heartaches I've been through. Only the lonely know I cry and cry and cry for you. Some of the lyrics. Now, if you read all of the lyrics, it makes it somewhat difficult to believe that the song became a hit. Because there's a lot of dumb, dumb, dummy, doo and oh yeah, yeah, yeahs in it. And yet, even in 1960, there were enough lonely people who identified with what was being said and with the mood of the song that they requested it be played. They bought the 45 vinyl records so that it climbed the charts to reach number two on the US top 40, and in the UK, it reached number one. The song was described in the New York Times as expressing a clenched, driven urgency. In other words, the aching pain of loneliness. And I would submit to you that the problem of loneliness that was testified through record sales and song requests back in 1960 has become a pandemic of its own today. That COVID, while being a pandemic, has spawned another one of loneliness and isolation. We've seen the images of people staring in despair out windows of long-term care homes, of individuals performing in the parking lots of apartment buildings as the dwellers watch, each separated on their own balconies. Maybe you've witnessed the skyrocketing demand and cost for pets something alive and warm and fuzzy to keep one company. Maybe you've experienced the fear of a positive COVID result, or the strange phone number showing up on your call display that is not the idiot claiming to be from the Department of Justice, but a contact tracer whose call fully locks you down. All of these images and more speak of a pandemic of loneliness. And what we've come to learn about loneliness is that it is not a passive feeling that leaves the rest of our person untouched. Rather, loneliness in and of itself is a health risk. Julianne Holt Lutstad published her solid scientific work in the Public Library of Science that is located in San Francisco. In it, she demonstrated that social isolation and loneliness are risk factors for early mortality. In fact, she wrote that loneliness is just as lethal as smoking up to 15 cigarettes per day. And people with strong social bonds are 50% less likely to die over a given period of time than those with fewer social connections. She said, and I quote, we need to recognize this is a health issue. It's not just about our emotional well-being, it's also medical, unquote. Which I guess for us means that while we isolate from one pandemic and we duck one, we may well be harmfully exposing ourselves to yet another if we're not careful. Now, the damage of loneliness is as old as creation itself. You go back to the early creation story, and what you see is a, well, a number of patterns, but one in particular, God creates something, and then he says, it is good. Creation, it is good, over and over and over again. Created, it is good. And there's only one exception to the pattern. It's recorded in Genesis 2.18, that reports God is saying it is not good for man to be alone. In response, from Adam's rib, God created Eve as a perfect companion for him. For a time in the garden, there was unbroken communion between Adam and Eve, who were known and fully known by each other. I don't know how long that state of unbroken communion lasted, I only know how it ended. When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they suddenly became aware of their nakedness, they were ashamed, and they covered themselves, which is the beginning of isolation as a result of sin, shown by hiding parts of themselves from each other because of this new and unknown feeling of shame. And since that time, the level of intimacy that God created to be enjoyed in the garden and beyond has been broken. The gap in communion was further broken when God cursed Adam and Eve by saying to her, Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And when he said this, what he did was he politicized what used to be intimate communion. Never again would a man and a woman experience the level of communion that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. But interestingly enough, the Genesis account never says that God took away the desire to obtain, to, to obtain it. We just can't. So that within every relationship between a man and a woman, there is a level of or times of disconnection, feeling like something should be there while it cannot. Intimacy that was designed in creation was ruined by sin, and it has continued on to be that way. And now, we are being forced apart by lockdown and quarantine so that what was originally a sin problem has now morphed into a larger social problem with the accompanying health implications. So here we are as the body of Christ, joined together in Christ but forced to be apart. So that at least for this week and the next two, there will be 15 people allowed to attend what is still labeled corporate worship. There are many in, in this church who are suffering from feelings of aloneness for multiple reasons. Today, and on Mother's Day, there are mothers who cannot gather with their children because of public health regulations for a second year in a row. Some believers live alone and cannot remember the last time they experienced compassionate human touch, let alone in-person conversation. Still others who are in positions of leadership which are implicitly lonely, And now, with no win, decisions that need to be made are even more cut off alone and criticized to boot. So what are we to do? How are we to respond to the loneliness crisis which has become even more intense over the last 14 months? And and it was further exacerbated by the increased restrictions this week. I want to explore that question today. Last Sunday, you may remember that we looked at the Apostles Paul to Apostle Paul's response to his house arrest in Rome. And we noticed from the book and from what he said that if we are infatuated with Jesus, we can live without fear of death and minister life despite COVID. Now, we read a passage in Second Timothy today that was written farther on in Timothy's life. You may recall that when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he was hoping that his imprisonment would end in release. He wasn't sure it would happen, but it did. He was released and went on to do great ministry. But in the passage that we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul knows that he is not going to be released to minister again, that the end of this imprisonment will be his death. And it is here that we get a look at the Apostle Paul in a state of deep loneliness. And as we look this morning at the sources of his loneliness and his response to loneliness, there will be practical lessons that we can apply to times when, the feeling, when we are feeling lonely and disconnected as well. Let's first get a look at the potential sources of loneliness from Paul's description of his, for he delineates two major sources of loneliness. The first major source of loneliness is related to the impact that place can play, the impact of location. To see the impact of location, we need to understand there's a dramatic difference between Paul's House Arrest, where he writes Philippians from last Sunday, and the imprisonment that he has experienced that we read about this morning. We know that he wrote these letters from the Tullianum section of the Mamertine prison in Rome. The prison itself consisted of an upper section, which is pictured on your left, and a bottom section, which is the tulianum on your right. The bottom section was probably built in the third century B.C., and the two of them were connected together by a hole that you can see in both pictures. The tulianum, the bottom layer, was where Paul was now. It was used as a death row. Prisoners were let down through that hole that you can see, they would have a rope wrapped around them and around their arms and they would be lowered through a large manhole type of hole. And when their feet hit the bottom, the rope would be released and they would be stuck there. The prison was like a sewer-like dungeon where prisoners were known to have died because they were eaten by rats when they were too weak to fight them off. Basically, it was a death row dungeon. And after execution, the bodies were transported away via the Tiber River. And it was here that Paul spent his final days, and from here that he wrote his final words, days filled with loneliness and words that betray the same. He knew the only way he was leaving that prison was not to do ministry, but via the Tiber. And from this we learn how profound location can fuel your feelings of loneliness. It's in the bottom of a dungeon in the cold, knowing that death awaits. I think it's safe to say that in the past 14 months, some long-term care homes have likely been some of the worst places in Canada to be living, not only for COVID, but also for the isolation and aloneness that comes from a lack of human kindness and decency, an inability to visit with loved ones aside from looking through a pane of glass and waving. If you've spent time in hospital, you know that although you are in pain, no one is allowed to share that with you because they can't be in the room. It can lead to desperate loneliness. Two weeks living alone in quarantine with no outside contact can birth the ache of loneliness. Being, I can't imagine what it would be like being stuck at home in an abusive relationship or a marriage that is on the rocks. In short, location can have a huge bearing on the intensity of your experience of loneliness. Therefore, as you assess your own levels of isolation, be aware of the part that place can play and make adjustments as needed. Now, not only did place play a part in the experience of Paul's loneliness and isolation, people played an even bigger part. Paul mentions some of them here who added to his loneliness, some without knowledge, some without compassion, another with extreme prejudice. And I think that we can sort them into three different people-related causes of isolation, each one more damaging than the previous. The first of the three being the absence of those who were legitimately busy the absence of those who were legitimately busy. For example, Paul mentions some of these folks, the end of verse 10, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. In verse 20, Eretus remained at Corinth, and Trophimus I left sick in Miletus. These were Paul's friends and comrades in the gospel who had traveled to other places probably to do ministry or, in the case of Trophimus, to recover from an illness. Their absence from Paul was because they had legitimate things to do and real places to be or an illness to recover from. They weren't doing anything to him. They just were not with him. He was fully aware that the end of his time would be his death and he wanted them near him because he missed them. The absence of those who were legitimately busy. Just like our family members who have jobs and lives and children and friends and ministry and other things. It's not like they are avoiding us. It's just that they are not or cannot be with us. Yet we have to admit that even those who were legitimately busy can play an unintentional role in our feelings of loneliness. But it is interesting to note, and probably important, that there was no judgment, there was no anger or manipulation that came from Paul regarding these folks. He understood their busyness. But in mentioning their names, he still acknowledges that Understanding their busyness doesn't necessarily alleviate his loneliness. The absence of those who are legitimately busy. Now, as Paul continues to share about the part that people can play in our experience of loneliness and isolation, he speaks of a second type of person. Or a people-related experience. And it's the desertion of those who have intentionally left us. The desertion of those who intentionally leave us. In verse 10, Paul talks about a former friend who may well have been a mentee named Demas. Paul says of him, Demas, having loved this present world, has departed from me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, we need to be careful, I think, that we do not demonize Demas. I've heard more than a couple of sermons in my time that point to Demas as an apostate, as one who threw away his faith. That's not what Paul says. In fact, his beef with with Demas isn't that he abandoned his faith, it's that he abandoned him. Perhaps the way it worked was that after visiting Paul through a manhole with death all around, Demas concluded that he didn't want this to be a part of his Christian experience anymore and preferred the finer things of life that could be held in Thessalonica as a Christian. So whether he deserted his faith or not isn't Paul's point. His point is that he deserted me. And there were a bunch of others neither numbered nor named, whom Paul expected support from. But they also ended up in the same class of people, deserters who intentionally left him. In verse 16, he testifies of them, saying, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. At Paul's trial, it's like he anticipated group support in the form of physical presence, even testimony or verbal support on his behalf. And those who should have either stood with him or stood up for him disappeared. Perhaps like Jesus' disciples in the garden, when, when the heat really came on him, most ran for their lives. Deserting him rather than defending him, or at least being with him to share that ordeal. And have you ever poured your life into someone, invested your time and knowledge and skill, lovingly sacrificed so that someone could have a better life, so that they could do their job better, so that they could be equipped, perhaps a group whom you've mentored, and then they just walk away when you need them most. It not only creates an experience of immediate loneliness, but a painful one as well. They might say things like, this isn't what I signed up for. What What you're asking of me is just too much. I'm not cut out for this. What happens is that it attacks you right at the base of your self-worth because all that you have invested in them, it's like it's poured out on the ground and trampled underfoot. The individual and group support that Paul needed and even counted on had abandoned him. It's loneliness caused by the desertion of those who intentionally leave us. There's a third type of painful loneliness caused by people, and it is the devastation of those who maliciously attack us. The devastation of those who maliciously attack us. They don't leave us in the lurch. Oh, no, they stay and make our lives miserable. Paul speaks of such a person in verse 14, writing that Alexander the smith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He vigorously opposed our teaching. Now what scholars believe is that Alexander was to Paul what Judas was to Jesus. The Greek reads here that Alexander informed many things against me. It's like he accused him of evil deeds. And I think from this we can assume that Alexander probably falsely accused Paul during his trial. And if the scholars are right, it's as if Paul and Alexander at one time had a connection. And perhaps at one time they shared a common cause. But then Alexander, for whatever reason or reasons, turned on Paul and attacked him with words and deeds. There's no sense or indication that Paul saw it coming. It just happened as a point in time with ongoing consequences. And perhaps you have had that happen, as I have, where you are blindsided by someone whom you think supports you, but instead they attack you. Perhaps it's publicly, or maybe it's in a more cowardly fashion in the meeting after the meeting that the rest of the group knows nothing about during which you're attacked. And although Paul mentions that God in his justice will certainly judge such an action, after it happens, you feel like you were left on the dark side of the moon, lonely and paranoid that such an attack could happen again. But from whom and when? So we've seen that loneliness can be created by the place you find yourself in and by the people who are or have been in our lives, those who are legitimately busy and unavailable, those who intentionally desert us, and those who maliciously attack us. But thankfully, what Paul also shows us in this passage is three ways in which we can respond to loneliness three ways in which we can respond to loneliness. We see the first way to respond to loneliness in Paul's words that bookend the section that we read, verse 9 and then again in verse 21. And what we basically see here is that Paul is shooting up a flare. When you're lost, when you're in danger, you fire off a flare. Listen to Paul's words to Timothy, his younger brother, and much-loved friend in the Lord. Verse 9, make every effort to come soon. And then the bookend in verse 21, make every effort to come before winter. What's Paul doing? Well, he's actually, or certainly, reaching out for companionship. But did you catch the urgency of the request? It's not, You know, come when you're able. It'd be great to see you sometime. Whenever you've got a free minute, drop on by. No, make every effort, conveys ideas like, please drop what you are doing right now and come. Spare no expense in coming to me. Clear the calendar, book the flights, gas up the car, pack your bags, and come tomorrow, soon. Reach out for companionship urgently if necessary. You know, despite the curses of the internet and cell phones and social media, we at least have something during COVID that can bring us out of isolation even if it is for a screen-mediated face-to-face visit with loved ones. Without that, I cannot imagine the mental health and physical damage that could be inflicted right now because of isolation and loneliness. I mean, can you imagine if we were in this situation with dial phones and posted letters? But because we have these tools, we can ask for COVID-safe companionship that would have been impossible to have 50 years ago. And Paul shows us that there is no shame in asking for it. He did it like twice in 10 lines. Make the call, write the email, send the link, arrange to meet according to the guidelines. Paul shows us that there is no shame in feeling alone, but there can be great harm in not reaching out. Reach out for companionship urgently if necessary. The second thing that Paul shows us is that we can request what we need to survive isolation. Maybe even thrive in it. For example, Paul shows us that we can request what we need physically. Paul knew that winter was coming, and so he asked Timothy in verse 13, when you come bring my cloak. The cloak about which Paul speaks was a A rather thick woolen outer garment that was like a poncho with a hole in the middle that you could pull over your head. Its design was so that you would be able to protect the wearer from rain and the cold of winter. In living in a damp dungeon, Paul knew that he would physically need his cloak if he was not going to get sick. It's difficult enough to be abandoned and attacked and alone, which he could not help, but to also be physically cold when there's a means available to stay warm seems foolish and needlessly dangerous. And so he asks for what he needs physically. And in doing so, he gives us the example, even the encouragement to do the same within your family group, within your friendship group, within Bethany Chapel family, there are avenues in which you can ask for what you need to physically survive or even thrive in isolation. Food, clothes, fuel, finances. Ask people for it. Paul shows us it's okay. The church office is open and you can call and speak to someone there as well. Now, in pretty much the same breath as Paul asked for what he needed to physically thrive and survive isolation, he also requests what he would spiritually need to survive it. We see it in the last part of verse 13 where he asks for the books and the parchments. Paul, as a disciple of Jesus, was a student of the Scriptures. And he would want to have any of them that he he possessed, and perhaps even his own notes available to him for his own spiritual strength while he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, we know if you've read or listened to Paul's defenses and speeches, how intimately he knew the Old Testament, probably having much of it memorized, and yet he wanted the texts themselves. You've got to wonder why. Well, according to David Makaloff, who has a PhD in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and I quote, in ancient times, there was a rule in Jewish law that actually forbade the teaching of the written Torah other than from a written text. One of the reasons behind this is that every letter in the written text bears meaning while some of those letters are not pronounced in an oral reading of the Torah. In other words, you can't hear some of the letters but you can see them. This constituted a trend specifically not to memorize the Torah. He says, I've seen great scholars of the previous generation deliver public lectures with notes in hand from which they read sacred texts rather than saying them aloud from what they remembered. Personally, I know of one famous rabbi in the first century, Rabbi Shimei, who, when asked, Do you have a copy of the Torah? He said, Actually, I have two of them, one in writing and the other is memorized. There is something important to having Scripture memorized, but there is also great value in reading and rereading what has been memorized. There is great value to be able to look down and see the words on the page. Paul wanted to feed his soul with the copies of Scripture that he possessed and that could be brought to him, even though he had it memorized. Perhaps you've experienced something like that where you've memorized this verse way back but you are struck differently by it as you read it again. It ministers fresh to you as you read the words on the page. So I would suggest to you that Paul's example demonstrates that time in the scriptures is needed spiritual food for the help in loneliness that as you spend time in God's word God will deeply minister to you through his spirit he will minister to you in your loneliness in ways that nothing else can and to complete Paul's what Paul shows us this morning he shares one final practice we see it in two verses in verse 16 and then in verse 18 Verse 16 reads, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me, may it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me. And verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his kingdom. Note, this is a side note from my notes, but did you notice how Even though everyone deserted Paul and he was left alone in the courtroom, he knew he was not alone because Jesus was with him. Okay? Also, did you catch the change in the verb tense between these two verses? While others forsook me, Jesus stood with me. That's past tense. And he will deliver me from every evil deed, future tense. And what that conveys is a practice whereby we reflect on the times when God has been powerfully with us so that we can confidently claim that he still is and always will be, even if we feel isolated and alone. Jesus is with us today with great empathy because he gets it. He said to his own disciples in John 16, 32, Behold, an hour is coming and already is already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone because my Father is with me. Jesus is, even now, fulfilling the great commission promise that I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And he does so as one who fully understands what it means to be alone, what it means to be betrayed, what it means to be attacked, and to at the same time experience the presence of his Father. And so we can come to him this morning as our great high priest, whom Hebrews tells us sympathizes with our weakness. He gets the loneliness peace and is therefore one we can go to and call out to in great assurance of faith that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some of us need that mercy and grace today from our Savior who understands loneliness and abandonment. And I want to pray for you today that he would make his presence real to you, his compassionate evident in your situation. And I invite you to bow with me, please. Our Lord, your servant David wrote in Psalm 142, look right, look left. There's not a soul who cares what happens. I'm up against it with no exit, bereft, left alone. But then I prayed to you, O Lord. Jesus, David described the plight of many today caught in the grips of loneliness and isolation. It feels sometimes as if no one cares, as if there is no way out of our loneliness no end in sight to this pandemic. Please make us aware of your presence that as you knew the Father was with you, we may know that you are with us, with comfort and encouragement in abundance. May we take the steps we need to take to address our loneliness and where our resources are just insufficient may your empathetic ministry to us be more than enough thank you that you never leave us or forsake us we trust in you and your presence by faith today amen thanks for listening to this sermon we hope you found it connected you to the god of truth and love who we worship and serve at bethany chapel if you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.